Okay, so we are going to discuss something. That is the idea. How's it going, Mike? It's going well, and you? Ah, you know, we got the coffees going, so we have as long as those last, I suppose. So we wanted to pull up some anatomy and see if this gets that conversation going, correct? Yeah, well, I think the plan was that we were going to target a specific region, maybe today being the hip. Okay. And uh, we'll review some anatomy, uh, more from the bioflow perspective. We'll talk a little bit about, you know, some of the common conditions or injuries or clinical presentations that uh, people might see uh, in the hip groin region, uh, maybe even including the pelvis, depending upon if we have some time. And then, you know, talk a little bit about how from an FRS perspective, we would manage these types of conditions or injuries or pathologies tissue specific wise using uh, our FR principles, uh, rehabilitation loading perspective from, from the ISM slash FRC perspective. And yeah, just kind of flow, flow through all that. Man, that sounds, that sounds great. <laughs> hopefully, it hopefully it works. Yeah, if it doesn't, it's okay because it's a podcast and it's free. So you can just click delete or go to the next podcast. Let's do this. I'll click this and I'll put a layer on and then let's start from there. So uh, I'll, I'll often pretend that I, I don't know what we're, we're talking about and I'll just start firing off some questions. So for example, where you know, you're at an FR and we're in the hip section. If you can think of anything as I go through, as layers come on, let's just go layer by layer and let's start with that layer right there. Well, uh, I think, yeah, so, so obviously we're, we're talking about the hip joint capsule. So uh, we'll review, I mean, over the course of the last 15 years, <laughs> we've yeah. talked about a lot of stuff. So some of this will probably be some review stuff. Some of this will probably be some new stuff. Uh, but we've talked a lot about hip capsules, obviously, in previous lectures. Uh, in one of those lectures, we talked about mechanoreceptors, and we talked about innervation, and I think that's important to discuss with respect to the hip. Uh, so obviously, the hip joint capsule is large. It's, you can see it's kind of multidirectional. Um, it encircles the femoral head. It even comes down onto the, the neck of the femur and a little bit of the periosteum of that proximal part of the femur. I was going to say it's, it's more, uh, it's more, uh, yeah, there's more, there's more flow of it than this actually shows for sure. But, uh, so I want to mention specifically that it's, you know, the, in, in it's, this is all in the literature. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not one to quote research articles cause that's not exactly how I learn. I just kind of pick up information. So I don't remember authors or titles or names or, or, or years, but we you know say that, that you say that, but you do, but <laughs> carry on. But the anterior and posterior hip capsule are, are highly innervated with a dense population of mechanoreceptors, which, you know, as we know, and we have discussed, and hopefully everybody who's listening has some idea is very important for a lot of things, uh, mainly being feedback to the nervous system about various things like joint position, joint pressure, speed of movement, 
so on and so forth. So that's that's really important from a from motor learning perspective and uh, a movement perspective. So if we're dealing with injuries of this region, you know, the capsule is and the, the tissues of the capsule and normalizing capsular function, which we can discuss uh, a little bit later, is going to be important. The other thing that is important uh, to review with respect to capsules, I think, is probably uh, Hilton's law. And we have discussed Hilton's law before. And Hilton's law basically tells us that any nerve that crosses a joint will send branches into that joint from, uh, from an external uh, 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 innervation perspective. I should go back and say that the mechanoreceptors are what we would call internal innervation of the capsule. Uh, so those are actually embedded in the capsular tissue. Uh, the external innervation would be uh, primarily from obturator, femoral, and sciatic nerves, which are the three major uh, nerve trunks that, that would cross the hip. Obviously, sciatic. Uh, there is a one pretty good paper that uh, outlines the branches of the sciatic nerve uh, from an articular perspective. So coming out of the obturator frame in there, that big, that big ropey structure is the sciatic nerve. And obviously not on this program, but in real life, there would be articular branches that would come off that nerve and innervate that whole posterior capsule. Yeah, so they pretty much, they, they, they lose the, the actual innervation part in these anatomy programs. I, yeah, I, I mean, it's so... I guess it's so difficult for them to kind of put on there. I would, I would imagine, but I mean, we know this from cadaver dissections. We know this uh, from anatomical uh, research studies, uh, which have been quite, quite good over the last few years. Uh, in addition, we have the obturator nerve on the medial anterior, which is going to send branches in there. And then we have the femoral nerve, uh, which is going to be primarily on the anterior surface of there. It is right there. Um, <clears throat> going to be on the anterior surface of that uh, articular capsule sending branches in. In addition to all of that, um, <clears throat> muscles that cross the hip and act on the hip, which will have motor branches from all of these nerves, will also send branches into the articular capsule. So now that pulls in a couple uh, other nerves uh, <clears throat> primarily the gluteal nerves, I think will be important for that. Uh, both the superior and inferior gluteal nerves will send branches into that hip joint capsule through the glute med, min, and, uh, glute max. So in um, other words, anything, anything crossing, that's pretty much what Hilton law is saying is that anything that's, that you recognize as crossing that joint is going to send articular branches to that joint. That's correct. That's correct. And, and that, that pulls in a lot of stuff, I think, uh, clinically as well. I mean, uh, in a lot of uh, what we have also discussed in the past is, you know, the deep structures of the hip uh, that also pulls in like obturator um, um, <clears throat> nerve again, through a lot of the hip rotator stuff, uh, nerve to gemelli, they're also going to give uh, cap uh, branches to the hip capsule. These are all deep structures. And in our bioflow model, these deep structures are really, really important because these are the ones that are going to flow the most into the hip. Uh, so this is really giving us that, that perspective of inside out, not in the traditional chiropractic way. <laughs> yes, yes. That inside out view of, of kind of everything uh, being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
uh, kind of like this, the capsule as being this crescendo of stuff and then working outward, all, all the deep structures are gonna have an intimate relation both from uh, a bow flow perspective uh, in, in, in attachments, but also from an innervation perspective and therefore a feedback mechanism into that capsule. Okay, uh, this is why we see a lot of, you know, glute med, glute min issues with hip joint problems, particularly like not injury specific, but immobility issues of the hip where somebody loses rotation, the glutes are going to be problematic. Those deep hip rotators, which don't actually rotate, those are more like capsular tensioners. Um, those are going to be problematic as well. So let's I think back, let's go backwards actually, because I want to, maybe now that we're doing it, it makes, it, it does make sense for us to go layer by layer. And then we'll get to that, that, that layer. But I did want to touch on a few things that we had said, and we've said them before, uh, but maybe I've said them, maybe someone else has said them, but it's always good to hear it again. So in terms of the capsule itself, mm -hmm. we say that an articulation really well for the articulations that we're dealing with as opposed to the sutures in the skull, but the ones that are actually uh, movement uh, dependent that, that, that we actually care most about, for example, shoulders and hips and knees and stuff. Synovial joints. Synovial joints. So, well, we start off at that space and then we say that the space itself is defined by the outer, um, the, the, the deepest tissue, which creates the outermost aspect of the space. So the space is defined by the capsule. And I think it's also important to say that when you start adding tissues as we are here uh, with an anatomy program, it gives a very um, bizarre understanding as to what exactly that capsule is, because it seems like there's individual things that are kind of laid on each other, almost like you're taking um, cold cuts and you're kind of peel pasting the cold cuts on each other. And then people have the idea that if I were to somehow grab this tissue here, it would be very easy for me to peel it off. That's um, right. But if we go back to our cadaver work, um, we realize, or at least we realize, that what you get at a capsule is imaginary in that we would have to have made the capsule using our scalpel. So mm -hmm. our scalpel, it's like an anatomist is an artist and the artist is painting you a picture as to what he or she thinks you want to see. But in reality, that capsule just represents the deepest layer of stuff, which defines That's right. the space. So tell me why the defining of the space is important. And then maybe you can speak to why the evolutionary process would suggest to us that the body seems to care most about the information coming from the tissue deepest to that space. Okay, so starting with space, uh, <clears throat> before I do that, I think maybe an analogy that just this came into my mind, instead of uh, thinking about like slapping cold cuts, mm -hmm. this, this, when you look at this in a cadaver dissection, it's like paper mache, right? Like, you know, it's really hard to peel one layer from another layer the deeper you go into the body, which just means that uh, the, the bioflow model just becomes more of a, of a useful framework to really understand the connection between everything as we go down. Mm -hmm. As far as space goes, <clears throat> so again, we, we've talked about this uh, in, the, in the past, <clears throat> but space is, 
space is important because for a lot of reasons, but primarily space is how the, the brain understands, or let's just call it the central nervous system, understands where you are in space. Mm -hmm. So, so space at a joint level is, you know, has boundaries set by the capsule. And when you think about the capsule, a lot of people just think about it as it looks here in like, it's just this, these, these core cuts that are just slapped across the two, the two bones. But we have to understand that the capsule is a very dynamic structure because of this paper mache model. And when I say paper mache, you have to understand that I'm talking like wet paper mache, not when it's dry and crusty and, and gonna break apart. This is wet. So it's, it's really dynamic. That means that all those deep structures are going to tension on that capsule as the femur in this case, with respect to the hip joint or the ilium with respect to the femur moves. So that's gonna create this tensional property across this capsule, which is going to dynamically change the space. So the space is the area inside the boundaries of the capsule that exists at the bony level. So this space would be between the acetabulum of the ilium and the head of, of the femur. And that space has to be regulated appropriately. <clears throat> so, you know, we, we have a certain amount of it anatomically. Some people that have um, growth issues or, or um, genetic issues of their hip where they lose a little bit of that space will not have as much, um, <clears throat> you know. In, Talking in, about like a cam or pincer type deformity. Yeah, or in even my daughter's case who has like dysplasia of the hip, her space is going to be different than, you know, a, a sort of a normal hip joint space, but it still functions the same. I didn't, re I didn't realize that your daughter does have that. She has, is it just, uh, what, what's, the, what's the, the misshapen area? Is it the head of the femur? It is the acetabulum. So she has a shallow acetabulum. And how did, when did you, uh, did you note that? Or how did you note that? Or was it just in, in scanning? Because I know obviously when the children are born, you have the scanning for a slipped cap or for... Yeah, so, so it's, uh, it's, it's I, I can't take any of this credit. This is all okay. just my wife. But uh, when she was who is a, also who is also a brilliant chiropractor for those uh, who are listening. Yeah. 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 So when when uh, Olivia, my daughter, was a baby and we were changing her diapers, um, you know how sometimes you have to you have to hold the hips open to to. Mm -hmm. So we would notice that like her left hip would would move a lot more than her right hip. And, and you could almost feel like a like a, a giving. Like a giving. Yeah, like sliding of that femoral head. And so, you know, right off the bat, very early, Jess was like, I think, I think there's something wrong with her hip. I think she's got hip dysplasia. So we took her to the family doctor who was like, no, it's normal, of course, obviously. And that's no disrespect to family doctors. But, um, and so at about the six month time frame, so Olivia was about six months, we took her to the pediatrician. And she had x-rays um, and the pediatrician was like, yeah, she's got, it looks like dysplasia of the hip. So we had x-rays and she has a shallow acetabulum. 
so on her those, left hip. For those listening, so it's DDH, developmental dysplasia of the hip, um, which, by the way, used to be called something else, as far as I can remember when we were in school. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All I remember in school was, to be honest, like that the whole pediatric exam, I kind of slept my way through because I was like, oh, I'm never going to see pediatric stuff in my, in my practice anyway. Yeah. But Jess, my wife, does see uh, some, some uh, pediatric stuff and has some extra training in pediatric stuff. So all credit to her, she, she picked this up. I mean, this is an important part, place to pause because if someone is listening and they do have children... Uh, number one, I just said that they do scan for these things uh, at birth. That is not to say that you shouldn't monitor um, children because up to the age where you're getting skeletal maturity, there are quite a few different things that can occur mm -hmm. in child, a child's hip. So DDH is one of them. We also have slipped capital femoral epiphysis where the mm -hmm. growth uh, plate on the, the head of the femur uh, begins to slip. Mm -hmm. um, and that can happen early on. There's also... Uh, it, for some reason, I can't remember the, the term, but it's a, a viral infection in the hip um, <clears throat> that leads to internal type hip pain that occurs in young boys, if I'm not mistaken, more. Uh, it's sounds around. familiar, but the name is escaping me. As the name, name is well. escaping. I remember this because I had to diagnose it in my, in my son. And the reason I bring this up is because especially in uh, young children, uh, these presentations often come show up just as the referral pattern so just as knee, as knee pain yeah uh, which i don't find maybe you're you, like referral patterns in general they say you know there might be pain there and it's not coming from there <clears throat> it's coming from somewhere else but i find as we become more mature in, in clients as we get older that the referral patterns tend to have the originating area as a symptomatic area as well in order in other words in a child they might just the, the knee, my knee hurts, my knee hurts, my knee hurts, no mention of the hip at all. And then of course I went to my son's hip and as we've discussed before, which is a nice leading topic here, there was a loss, immediate loss of internal rotation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think this is a good time to, to bring up the fact, by the way, this condition, if I remember, I'll put it in, it's, it's self-limiting, uh, it's a viral condition of the hip. Um, it, it pretty much uh, shows up as a as an internal swelling of that hip uh, you knew because like a posterior slide test caused pain mm -hmm. any internal rotation caused uh, groin pain uh, which brings up another point now that we're here uh, for people listening if you have an actual hip problem you have a groin problem in that intrinsic hip conditions uh, present as groin pain and yes. I say that because when people point to something like the outside of the hip, let's say they're saying that they have, let me add that bone back in the femur. So people will say that they have pain out in this region here, <clears throat> which is either a localized condition, uh, maybe a tendinopathy of the hip rotator cuff, or it's a, a referral problem coming from, from the spine. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so th there's a good place to start there too. So in the, a child, you will lose internal rotation as you will in almost any condition of the hip. So why would that be? Again, that, that's, a, that's a space issue. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's a, the, we were kind of talking a little bit about that space being a dynamic entity. And so if you think about, if you think about and you try to visualize sort of a, a, an area of space, 
in your in your in your mind right now, and you think of uh, a bony end on one end of that space and another bony end on the other end of that space, as those two bones move either closer together or rotate relative to each other, you're going to see that 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 space is going to dynamically change. So in any condition of the hip, uh, whereby you are going to change the space, for the most part, you're going to lose space. Uh, you're going to see that the the dynamics of the motion is then going to change, but also that space is going to become smaller because the two bony ends are going to move closer together. I'm simplifying this tremendously uh, and I'm doing it for visual effect, but those two bony ends are gonna come closer together or they're gonna lose that relative motion and you're gonna see that the dynamics of that space between them is going to be uh, far different. And that is going to affect what we would call fundamental motion of the hip, which is both internal and external rotation. Now, the internal external rotation also is the capsular pattern of the hip, which means that when that, if you can imagine that that hip in time with generation starts to shrink wrap around the joint, the first thing that we're going to lose is going to be internal. Uh, followed by external. And I think it's also important for us to point out the fact that when we're assessing, in order to assess uh, the depth of the problem in an articulation, to get to the, the deepest part of that articulation in a, a joint such as the hip or the shoulder, axial rotation would be the way that we would assess the purest form of how does the femur move on the acetabulum. And reason being, if we go into flexion or abduction or extension, there's so many overlying tissues that muddle up your assessment findings. Whereas if we just take That's that right. bone and we rotate it in that capsule uh, or in that, that space, we, we start to get to the deepest layer uh, of tissue, which governs the space, which is the capsule, which has a capsular pattern of internal versus external rotation, which also holds high regard um, by way of the central nervous system because of the fact that the information from the mechanoreceptors in those deep tissues have a, a, a greater connection to the supraspinal area. In other words, the, the, the cortex, meaning that the information from that capsule is almost immediately filtered up to that cortex, to the brain, um, because that's where the decisions are made as to how to set muscular tone, et cetera, et cetera. 100%. So, so I think what's, what's valuable out of You know, in, in, in FRM, we discuss all of this. We discuss internal, external rotation. We, we discuss, you know, passive and active assessment and analysis of the hip. But, but I think what's important to really just understand for everybody listening is that when you, when you analyze a hip uh, in internal and external rotation, in your mind, not only are you looking at how, you know, internal and external rotation as movements, you're really looking at the dynamic nature of the amount of space that is available in that hip currently. <clears throat> which we can say is capsular space, which is the rate limiting um, enzyme, so to speak, as I, as I often say, for your workspace. So in other words, your workspace, which is the amount of space that your body has potential to do work in, will be... Uh, hindered by a lack of capsular space. Now, that's not to say that your workspace is always 
a, a problematic workspace is always the problem of the capsule or the capsular mm -hmm. space, but it is to say that you better rule that out first and foremost, because if it is, there's no getting past that. 100%. I want to go back uh, to one point that you made that I, I think is uh, a valuable and it, it kind of brings in Hilton's law as well. So we were talking a few minutes ago about the innervation of the hip and you uh, mentioned from a clinical perspective uh, and, and, and those listening should be aware of this as well in that hip joint problems don't sometimes don't present as hip problems. They present as knee problems. <clears throat> and that, that is based on, on the referral process. So we've talked about the referral process uh, from an embryological perspective. We don't have to uh, uh, get into that if we don't want. But I think what is valuable is a lot of times in the hip, um, and you could probably uh, agree with me, is that we see the anterior hip being more problematic than the posterior hip from a, from a, uh, like a movement perspective. So we get a lot more um, what we would call closing angle uh, pain and or restriction moving into flexion than we do in extension mm -hmm. as a result of poor anterior hip capsule stuff. Uh, now I know that, that we would target posteriorly on that and we can get into that in a second, but what I'm saying is, is that that will show up as an anterior hip issue. So the anterior hip becomes more problematic than the posterior hip. And that's just, you know, just think about that from a movement perspective, you have far more workspace in deflection than you do into extension in the hip. We all be simply defined by the bony availability of, of space to move into, which is in this image, you can see this, this anterior zone, which is very free and clear to move versus the posterior zone where you see that the hip is yeah, uh, there's a lot more, lot more coverage for sure. More coverage, yeah. Uh, what was I saying? So when we look at Hilton's law from the front on that capsule, we have primarily femoral nerve, uh, obturator nerve. Well, both of those nerves also innervate the knee joint. So Hilton's law at the hip uh, tells us that uh, there'll be articular branches into the hip joint capsule, but Hilton's law at the knee tells us that both of those nerves will also send branches into the knee joint capsule because they will act on muscles and or structures uh, that will move the knee. In addition, they will cross the knee. So uh, this dichotomization of the femoral and obturator nerve uh, can be related to that referral pattern that we see uh, whereby a hip joint issue can actually manifest as knee joint pain. Okay, sorry for the technical problem. So you were talking about the innervation for the knee, but I did want to say the word transient synovitis because it, the condition... Oh man, how did we forget that? I don't know, but that's the condition that we were talking about where you have a viral infection. Uh, sometimes it, it follows a cold uh, in a young person. Um, yeah, so it's actually a, it was actually a very startling uh, presentation because it started off with a limp, if I recall it correctly, that my boy just started limping all of a sudden. Right. And then it, it looks like a real acute infection. Uh, but of course, it's transient and it's, and it's self-limiting for the most part. But you were telling the last thing you had said was the that the innervation for the knee uh, spreads from the hip. Hilton's law 
the obturator nerve, femoral nerve, the obturator nerve sending uh, branches to the knee. That's where we had ended. Yeah. So I was just, I was just mentioning that you brought up the point of, of sometimes, you know, we see clients or, or patients that come to us with what they think is knee pain that's coming from a, a hip issue. Uh, and part of, uh, of referral is, is based on uh, embryological development, of course, but the neuroscience to some extent of referral comes from the similarity of innervation. So if we have a hip joint that is uh, becoming problematic, the mechanoreceptors are, are um, perceiving nociceptive input, uh, you know, the type one, type two, type threes are not becoming hugely active with movement related things. Obviously that's going to influence the external information or innervation, I should say, which comes, which is explained by Hilton's law. And if we look at the front part of the hip, which is more problematic uh, in, in most cases than the back, uh, it's innervated by the femoral and obturator nerve, which also give articular branches to the knee. So we can have, uh, you know, referral based on sort of nociceptive information from the hip that is being transmitted down to the knee, which then looks like the client feels like, or the patient feels like they have knee pain, but it's actually coming from, from the hip. And so this sort of dichotomization of innervation of articulations can help us understand why sometimes we have, or the client perceives knee pain in a hip joint problem. Let me uh, do this because I don't wanna leave <clears throat> the, the layer of the space just yet uh, without bringing up uh, something that we're often asked about at seminars, which is the idea of centralization. Um, so do you wanna take a, a stab? I think you mean centration, correct? I'm sorry, not centralization, centration. Right, right. Uh, so maybe we can take a stab at, at centration. Um, and really, if we can just briefly explain the dynamics of the joint and how the joint moves. So I'm assuming we're going to get into obligate translation and why that's important for um, continuous afferent feedback. Yeah, so I, I think it's... Um... How do I, how do I want to, how do we, how should we start this? I think we should start this by saying that at a, so when you look at people move, so you could take a hundred people who all have, you know, the same accessibility to workspace. Uh, and you can make them do global movement of the hip. So flexion, extension, ab, adduction, whatever the case is. And it all kind of looks the same. <clears throat> but I think what's important to understand is at a capsular level, it's not all gonna be the same. Mm -hmm. So the, the motion of the two bones relative to each other for one person to achieve flexion is going to be you know, a certain amount of femoral head rotation and glide. And for another person to achieve that same amount of flexion, it's going to move slightly differently. And so that's just the, the nature of like a, a dynamic system. And, and we have referred to joints as being their own little dynamic systems 
regulated by space. So that's why that space concept is so important because it really, it is dynamic in and of itself, but it is what determines what happens at a relative movement level or a relative motion level down at the joint, which is going to then determine what is going to happen with respect to global movement. So this idea of centration per se, whereby, you know, all joints have to be located in this particular part of, of uh, um, the, the, the capsule. So in this case, the femoral head has to sit in a certain area of the acetabulum to have normal motion, I think is a very simple or simplistic way of, and it's too simple to be quite honest, to, to looking at joint motion because um, if you do, if you take one person and you ask them to do a hundred knee, uh, uh, hip flexion. So bringing the knee to their chest, every single one of those is going to be slightly different <clears throat> down at a capsular level, just based on how that nervous system is getting feedback from the capsule, uh, what output it's giving to the muscles to move that hip, so on and so forth. So, so I, I, I really don't think that that concept makes a lot of sense. In addition to that, I think a lot of that concept is based on um, what we would call uh, like joint movement rules. So, um, you know, I, I, we learned about these in, in chiropractic school. Um, I think PTs learn them in PT school where you have that convex moving on concave and that's going to determine what happens. And there is probably some extent of that that rings true uh, because of the shape of joint surfaces. Like when you look at, at all synovial joints that, that move, ones that we, we really care about, there's no surface that is actually straight. There's always some concavity and some convexity. So there is some element of that. But if you look at the, the literature on you know, let's just call it movement of the hip. So they really look at, you know, there's some studies where they look at dynamic MRIs or they do like some sort of mathematical biomechanical analysis. No two studies ever get the same results, which means that this movement is relatively chaotic. It doesn't happen exactly the same every single time. There's, there's rule, general rules that we can abide by but movement at a joint level doesn't happen the same. So why we are trying to think about positioning from a, from a therapeutic perspective, why we think about positioning joints in every single person exactly the same. And it should be the, the, the femur should sit here. And when we talk about the spine, the lumbar spine should have this much lordosis. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense when you put it in the realm of how joints actually move. Okay. So um, you can have a, a femoral head that sits a little bit more forward in the acetabulum that can still have good, a, a good amount of dynamic space and can move extremely well and have access to rotation of that hip, um, which technically wouldn't be in a centrated position, but it's still a normal hip. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I think that the bioflow of the hip, and when you actually do look at a hip, 
<clears throat> there's an overabundance of tissue that would be registering the movement. So <clears throat> I think maybe the centration idea comes from the building of skeletal models where you put the acetabulum or the, the head of the femur in the acetabulum, and then you kind of consider that to be a, you almost consider that a screw is put through that joint. And <laughs> like it is in a, in a model. <laughs> like it is in a model. And we say that jokingly, but at the same time, we also discuss the idea that, you know, for example, muscle fu function, the way that muscle function has been largely thought about um, up until very recently is this idea that there's directionality of a muscle. And if you take a cadaver and you slide, you know, strings through the directionality of the muscle and tug on the string that you somehow um, begin to understand the, the nature of the contraction of that muscle, which as we now know not the uh, case. is not the case, especially because of the bioflow model and especially because of the idea that a muscle is not really a thing as opposed to proteins that develop in the milieu of connective tissue in order to uh, I think, I think that's a, I think that's, I, I left that out. And I'm, I'm glad you, you added that, but, but when you, when you really, when you really kind of grasp that understanding of, you know, uh, joints not functioning in isolation and muscles just moving the bone, which causes something at the joint. And you really think about what you just said, uh, of of all these deep tissues flowing into the capsule. I mean, that's why you have chaotic movement mm -hmm. because when you think about like, for those of you who haven't done cadaver dissection, like when you get down deep, all you really see is white tissue mm -hmm. with some red tissue kind of embedded in. So when you think about like force through a hip joint, which is very, dense white and then some deeper muscles that have more dense white tissue on top of them and you think about movement of that hip and the directionality of forces through that white tissue there is no way that that can be replicated time after time after time after time which is why you get this this sort of chaotic nature of of joint movement which comes from the dynamics of space so mm -hmm. in our eyes it's not, it's, it's a very limited construct to think about uh, bones being sort of in the middle of the joint and then moving and trying to, to stay in the middle of that joint. In our eyes, everything is regulated by the amount and access to space that you have. And then just let the let the nervous system do what it wants with that space. It will figure it out over time. Um, and it will learn how to use that space. And sometimes when, you know, you have uh, a, an athlete, for example, who has to make a dynamic uh, movement in deep hip flexion, that deep hip flexion is going to not be the same at a joint level as just a passive hip flexion or an unloaded hip flexion. Mm -hmm. So we just have to understand because of, of the amount of forces that are being put through that hip and the tissues that will engage, that will tug on the white stuff, that will activate mechanoreceptors, which sends feedback to the nervous system, that's different all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, you know, the, the framework of just really looking at it from a, a, a space perspective actually really simplifies it for how you would manage something like a hip joint. I think it also pays its due respects to the evolutionary process. 
Yeah, we didn't talk about that. You you mentioned that, but we didn't really talk about that. So carry okay. on. Well, I mean, the I think that if you understand the anatomy from the way that anatomy was taught to us, which, you know, Vanderwall would discuss this in parallel organizational model where, like we said, there's paper mache of things that are stuck on top of other things. And I think that that understanding of anatomy and the isolation of anatomy <clears throat> really dictated our knowledge base for, for a great number of years. And there was an, uh, perhaps an overemphasis on biomechanics. And when I say an overemphasis on biomechanics, I mean an over simplification of biomechanics in order to bring the understanding down to the level where we were at. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when you're drawing vectors and, and making calculations and, and, and let's say turning it into math, we would turn it into the math of the level that was understood at the time. And, mm -hmm. and things were often thought of in this, in this piecemeal concept where the anatomy was uh, mentally dissected out and, and then thought of for its own sake. So each structure did its own thing. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, um, when we understand the anatomy as an emergent phenomenon um, and, we, and we, we draw it back to the evolutionary process and we realize that the reason it's so chaotic is because the evolution didn't have a goal in mind. And this is a fundamental thought that has to remain in people's head when they're speaking of any dynamic system such as the body is that if there was no fundamental goal in mind, then what you're seeing is the result of the system trying to adapt to the environmental pressures that were particularly put on those tissues at that time. Mm -hmm. And we're talking now over millions of years. Um, you know, when we get to the human level, we're talking over the, you know, up to 300,000 years ago, uh, those environmental conditions are highly unknown to us. It, it's too, I mean, the, we're talking about millions of years and mutations and how it was dealt with. So what you're given or what you see in the anatomy when you think of it from that perspective is a big mess, right? You see, you see uh, joints that are, that are surrounded by what we call capsule, but in reality, it's just the deepest stuff. And then on these capsules, you see these thickenings of capsule, which we later give names to, and we mm -hmm. call, you know, we call them ligaments and I can point them out here. And when I click on, on one, it does so at the expense of the other, um, as if this structure, this pubofemoral ligament is a thing, yeah. but, but it's not really a thing. It's just a thickening of a thing, um, which was thickened over time again, in order to, to, deal with whatever abnormal forces were, were acting on it. It's the same thing when we, when we move our way outward and we talk about things that people know and love, like the iliotibial band, and we see things like, well, there's really no such thing as this iliotibial band. And then people go, well, what do you mean? There's no such thing as the iliotibial band. And then what we point out is that this is not real. Like this image is not a real image. Mm -hmm. And in the cadaver, when we did the cadaver lab, we didn't find this so much as we made this, mm -hmm. right? So what we did was we took this and then we started to peel away. So if you look at this in a hole, you see the entire quadricep is covered by this outer, this outer tissue called fasciolata, right? And then on the side of this fasciolata, 
if we were to say, you know, where does the fascia lattice start to become thicker? It starts to become thicker right about there. And then where does it stop being thick right about there? So we take our cadaver, our, our cadaver and we take our scalpel and we slice from here to here. And then we go, Hey, look, I just made you an ITB. Uh, and then you look at the biomechanics of the ITB in isolation and you start to think of what it may or may not do. But when you put back the rest of the tissue, whatever you thought was happening, it's probably way more complicated than that. So we sure. see that the ITB is just a, a thickening. Now, why would the thickening be there? Well, if you're a quadrupedal animal, you don't really, you know, there is lateral stability issues, but not to the extent that there are in a bipedal animal. So when you start adding coronal plane challenges, starts, things start to thicken. That's the same thing. I mean, we've talked about this before, but it's the same thing as the medial collateral ligament of the knee. If I start coming down into the knee um, and we take off this connective tissue layer, and then we start to pull off some of this muscle, we'll start seeing these imaginary structures uh, of the medial aspect of the knee. Um, and, and we'll start seeing these medial collateral ligaments and all this stuff, which aren't real things so much as they are thickenings of tissue that, that thickened in order to counter the, the forces that were being placed on it. So um, I don't remember how we got into this, but I think needless to say that the anatomy is not as easy as we would like it for the sake of understanding the math. So with regards to centration of a joint, the idea that it goes to the middle and then rotates is a very nice concept, but in reality, it's not what's occurring. And when the, that joint begins to move, that joint can be sitting at various areas in that acetabulum. And then the movement itself will cause obligate translations to occur. So there's sliding that occurs uh, during the motion where the bones not only rotate, but also slide past one another. And that's actually ends up being vital because it ensures that the connective tissue afferents is constant and it's, it's constantly being fed up uh, to the central nervous system. Yeah. And as you were speaking there, I, one thing that kind of popped into my, into my head as you, as you were kind of going, maybe not so much with respect to the iliotibial band, but if, if you're thinking about like um, the medial collateral ligament, for example, or the, the anterior hip joint capsule, uh, and you think about like going from quadrupedal to bipedal in the evolutionary process. And, and as you said, these structures kind of thickened as a result of that. Like when you, when you even take a step back and you think maybe why that thickening occurred and why that directionality of that tissue occurred, it was to regulate the amount of space that was available at the articulation, right? Meaning so that that was the based on bipedal stresses, mm -hmm. we adapted to those bipedal stresses by thickening certain areas of connective tissue, which you know later on in time were given these names. But you know, irrespective of those names, you know those those thickenings are there to regulate the space that was available to us becoming bipedal and being these adaptive organisms, right? Correct. Organisms that can deal with, you know, these different stresses in different ways and still have some level of success in dealing with those. Mm -hmm. And that, 
that really, again, speaks to that, the importance of, of that dynamic space as being something that from an evolutionary perspective is something that we want to try to uh, maintain over time because that is what gives us the advantage. I would actually, yeah, 100%. And I think another way to, to think about this is the deepest tissue is where you see, uh, I would say, the most dramatic changes between species. So, yeah. for example, if you look at the spine uh, in the evolutionary timeline, what you do not see in quadrupedal animals is any extensive lateral ligament, uh, ligament stabilizing system of the spine. Right. Uh, the lateral ligamentation, ligament stabilizing system of the spine was something that developed in the aftermath of moving from a quadrupedal to a bipedal animal. That's so, so cool. Man. Yeah, isn't that isn't that crazy? So when you look really deep, I, I, I often say that the, the deeper you look, the more you understand the, the anatomical process for what it is, which is what you said is the preservation of the space. You have to think of the space as being the the uh, the, the, what's the word? The first, uh, well, we say this, it's it, the only thing that's really protein for in your body, meaning the DNA is really coding for is a generic understanding as to where the space needs to be. So your shoulder kind of needs to be here and your hip kind of needs to be here. And that is known, but based on that, that cascades everything that will lead to the development of that articulation. So the space needs to be here and that's all you know. And then there's a series of events where you have uh, uh, abnormal fluid flow into particular areas around that space, leading to a condensation of the, the tissue in that space, leading to an eventual cavitation of the space. Mm -hmm. And then you have this, this glob of cells that have these little spaces. And then from there, you get twitches. And then the twitches of you know, movements, very minute, very uh, local movements, start the process of the development of the joint which is all based around the preservation and maintenance of that space. That's and right. if you think of it from that perspective, and then you go back and think of the anatomy, you start to go, holy shit, the deep parts of that anatomy really dictate. Another good example, which I think is crazy, is um, we talk often of the popliteus in the knee. And if you look at the popliteus in the knee, and then you start to do uh, comparative anatomy with other uh, species, you realize that the popliteus of the knee didn't always cross the knee joint. The popliteus of the knee, I hope I can add this here. Where is that? There's the popliteus right there. So in a human popliteus, that, that, that joint or that tissue crosses over the knee articulation in order to articulate, um, where are we here? Just into the anterior aspect of the, the anterior lateral aspect of that femur in that slight, small depression. But this uh, insertion point was actually an evolutionary uh, construct because uh, originally that popliteus was actually just going from the tibia to the fibula in order to really gauge the tension between those two parallel bones. And then you see in time a migration of the popliteus across the knee. And then you see the change in its function from just being a, a monitor of tension between tib fib into a monitor of rotation uh, in the knee joint. And of course you see the exact same uh, finding if we were to bring up the elbow, when you look at the pronator teres and the pronator teres actually grew a separate head in order to cross over the elbow. 
in order to allow for rotational feedback uh, to be sent to the central nervous system. It, it, it's fascinating. Totally, totally cool. Yeah. So let's go back up, I suppose, and go into, we're saying totally cool. We might be the only people nodding our heads. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's. But anatomy make- tells a story, right? I think that's important to understand that, that anatomy is not just like these, these attachments and innervations. It, it tells a story of where we currently are in the evolutionary timeline. And it also tells the story of the ranking of importance of issues to the system itself, to the emergent. It's like, I mean, emergence is a, it's a, what a motherfucker of a concept eh? because like now it just bleeds its way into everything, into every concept. But this idea that you can have uh, an initial condition and then you just set that that on the course and that initial condition, whatever it is, in this case, just the development of that space. And then the, the anatomy plays out so that the interactions between the cellular components emerge these, these systems, these complex systems mm-hmm. um, whose job it is, is, is to, you know, to, they, they, they have specific functions. If you take a living being, we've talked about this too, the function is to acquire things in the external environment. And that necessity to acquire things is all that need be present in order to kickstart this, this phenomenon of cells merging with each other and speaking to each other and communicating force uh, in, in ways that alter the tissues and et cetera, et cetera. It's like when you ask what a ligament is, the answer is it's a response to, to force. Mm-hmm. And I also, we also talk about, I don't know if I told you this, but I brought this up in, in, in a different way. It, it's something that we've always talked about um, in, our, in the courses, but I just slightly described it differently in that all of the tissues that you see are the result of a particular force profile, which was um, exposed to those tissues in time. So the reason why you know a, a muscle is here and a ligament is here and a tendon is here is not because it was pre-proteined for, it was because the particular force profiles acting on those tissues in time uh, altered those tissues to be able to better handle the particular force profile mm-hmm. that was being put in. So another way to think of training is the understanding of how to match the specific force profiles to the individual tissues that you're trying to train, which Mm. is why the training of a muscle is not the same as a training of a ligament is not the same as a training of a tendon, because if you mismatch the force profiles, then you do not actually make changes where you want those changes to be made. That is, uh, yeah, I I haven't heard you describe it like that, but that is, that is really cool. And and when you think, I'm just thinking of, of the ISM now. I mean, really, really what we're doing, not the only thing we're doing, I'm, I'm not downplaying it, but, but we're, when, we, when we speak of, of the maxims of training with respect to biological and neurological uh, uh, elements and mechanisms, we are just profiling force. Correct. And we're over, trying to- over different timeframes. <clears throat> Absolutely. Like, I, and maybe this is, maybe this is, I mean, to you and me, I'm pretty much. That's, giving uh, you... that's, that's, uh, that's quite profound there, Dr. Spina. I like that. 
Listen, I just took things that we've been talking about for years and I put slightly different words to make them sound cooler. But but sometimes, but 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 that's that's I mean that's why we have these discussions though, right? For for you and I, but also for 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 other people is because I mean we've been essentially talking about all of this stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong, things have progressed and you know, I think what we know now is different than what we knew five years ago and so on and so forth. But we have these discussions because sometimes we have talked about something in the past that now when we talk about it now, you know, we talk about it in a different way or under a different lens or whatever, and it sheds new light for people to understand, um, you know, what we're talking about. And in addition for, for you and I and, and all the other uh, uh, instructors of, of FRS, it, it helps us, you know, see things, you know, in different ways so that we have a, 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 a bigger, understanding of you know what we're doing well i mean yeah and to think of it as a force profile like like you just said in the internal strength model we're confining the the way the 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 exercises are done and that is to say we're confining the force profile that we're exposing to the particular tissues now why is that important it's weird because we talk about bioflow and we talk about the fact that everything is connected to everything right mm -hmm. And I'll often say at the, at the seminars, a good analogy to understand that is if I take a sample of your patellar tendon inserting into your, your uh, patella or into your tibial tuberosity, and I put it under a microscope, what you, what you wanna see is this tendon and then you wanna see the bone. So we're looking at the interface between tendon and bone. And the fact of the matter is, is that interface doesn't exist. So if I, I, I'll say, if you give me a slide, and you show me at the cellular level where the tendon becomes this bone. And I give you a marker and I say, draw a line in the middle of the slide such that the left side of the slide represents tendon and the right side of the slide represents bone. There is no such line. In other words, on this side, the cells, fibers, and ground substance represent or they, they, they resemble tendon. And then on this side, it resembles bone. And then in the middle, you have some tendinous bone transition Mm -hmm. uh, which really has no name. So in one way, you say that there's no such thing as things. So, you know, the bicep originates somewhere in the body and then inserts into the rest of it, right? That's, that's the extent of the origin insertion concept. So we talk about the flow of tissue. The reason I'm bringing this up because it almost makes it sound like the understanding that there are different tissues is somehow not important, mm -hmm. but it actually makes it more important because now you can't separate the muscle by thinking of an origin and insertion and then just playing with those two origins and insertions. You have to consider the distribution of the tissue at a further level. But if I want to hone in on the MCL, the way that you do that is by setting the maxims in such a way that you bleed more energy into the very specific tissue that you're trying to uh, most acutely change, understanding that whatever input you put, it's going to bleed into that bioflow. But That's if right. you really want to make changes at the MCL, it's even more important for you to hone in the force profile, i.e. the way force is applied so that it matches the MCL or so that you can best bleed information into the MCL uh, as opposed to other things. Now, people, why would that be important? It's everything like 
I just we just uh, got back from NASA and we're we're thinking of you know how do you prepare an astronaut to go into space? And as soon as you ask that question, these things become even more important because we know that when you leave Earth's gravitational pull, the body's going to start to leach calcium and you're going to get more calcium in your blood because the bone no longer has to deal with the the stress of gravity and then ergo doesn't need to be bone anymore. And if you go back to an embryological standpoint, you see the proof of that in that babies' bones are not made of bones. They're made of cartilage. Why? Because you're in an aqueous uh, environment when you're in your mother's womb. The gravity doesn't affect you as, as much as it does after birth happens. And then you have this gravitational pull and then the tissue starts to change. So in other words, the tissue changes based on the change in the force profile. And you can reverse this uh, scenario, or you can prove it even further um, with uh, ACL um, surgery. So if you have an anterior cruciate ligament, obviously, if I were to biopsy your ACL and put it under a microscope, it, it resembles the cells, fibers, and ground substance that are known to be ligamentous or ligament. Uh, ligament. But if you then rupture that ACL and you take a piece of your patellar tendon. So now we're taking a tendon and we're replacing it with the, the ligament with the tendon. Obviously, if you biopsy that graft right after surgery, it's going to look like tendon, right? Now, what happens if you then allow three years to go by and then re-biopsy that graft? What you end up seeing is ligament. So in other words, the tendon has now become ligaments because we have change the force profile in those tendons. And that's why we say force is the language of cells in that it's the force is actually telling the cells what to become. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So again, going back to that. So if you take someone like an astronaut and you go, oh shit, well, you know, muscles are only made in order to counter gravity. And now you're up in uh, the ISS and you're like, well, shit, there's no gravity. So now you have to seriously consider how to hone the training in order to skew the, the training towards muscular development. Or you might say, before we leave, we wanna increase the density of the connective tissue structures, the bone and the ligaments. Right. So while before you take off, how do you build that, overdevelop that specific tissue such that you don't end up you know, drawing back from it when you're in space? So you know, that's a cool uh, example, but when you get into, rehabilitation, when you get into training of specific athletes, this understanding of force profile is the difference between generic training and treatments and specific training and treatments. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's really good. <clears throat> I don't know if we, if we want to, I have a, I have a, an example of that. I think, uh, it's not a hip example, but it happened this week that I think is uh, a good example of force profiling. And so I'll, I'll, alleviate, I'll, I'll leave out some details just for the sake of brevity, but <clears throat> I've been dealing with this, this uh, client who had um, chronic long-standing patellar tendinopathy. Uh, so uh, he, had, he had come to me after a year of dealing with this. And in that year, he had had a PRP injection, which didn't really do anything. Surprise, surprise. Um, and he had been training. So um, 
he had been training on his own, but uh, I should go back and say, this is a, a, a rugby athlete. So, I mean, he's a, he's not tall, but he's a, he's a big muscular dude. He had been training. Uh, he had been seeing uh, some other uh, practitioners who had been giving him some exercises. Um, surprisingly, not a ton of anything related to the length loading continuum, but nonetheless, he was being managed. So I saw him uh, starting about six or seven weeks ago. So this past week was our fourth visit. And the reason why it was only the fourth visit was, you know, scheduling issues, so on and so forth. So we had started on, actually, let me take a step back. Part of, of the management was um, alleviating some of the, the soft tissue limitations that were in existence, trying to create some um, loading at length of that patellar tendon. So before we even got into eccentrics, because I know everybody goes, oh, tendon stuff, eccentric. Mm -hmm. So putting him on the length loading perspective, uh, uh, progression, using uh, pails inputs, positional isometrics, um, so on and so forth. <clears throat> In that management, I asked, he asked me, hey, I, I have an appointment for another PRP injection. And I was like, well, you know, I don't, I don't really think that that's going to add anything to this. Um, so we, so I just, I discussed with him that I don't think a PRP injection is warranted at this point in time, that I think we really have to give this some time. Now this was after the second visit. Uh, so like five weeks ago. So, um, <clears throat> I talked him out of the PRP injection, but also at that time he went on vacation. So I didn't see him for a period of time, but at that point in time, we started progressing into long, slow loading at length. Mm -hmm. So long duration eccentrics. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, which in the literature you would read about as, as part of like the Alfredson protocol, uh, the jumper's knee protocol, um, there's tons of literature on that. And when you look at that stuff, it's all long, slow loading, <clears throat> which is a particular force profile. Correct. Yes. Okay. So we started uh, at long, slow loading. And the reason I started there is keep in mind that he had never really done a ton of eccentric stuff. Like the most he had done was, you know, some pistol squat uh, eccentrics at you know, normal speed, let's call it, like just letting, you know, his, the, the force of gravity bring him down. So when you look at that, it's still on the slow aspect of loading. So again, I was trying to make this short, but uh, so I saw him, uh, so we started long, slow loading eccentrically. He went away again, um, started to do some dynamic stuff. <clears throat> By the way, at this point in time, after long, slow loading, if we did long, slow eccentrics, no pain, by the way. Mm. Okay. So he was having no pain. Before that, he was having pain in the patellar tendon with, with loading. So we put him on the length loading progression, got the slow loading eccentrically, no pain. Okay. He goes away for a couple of weeks uh, again. <clears throat> um, and while away, starts doing a lot of dynamic stuff. So now he thinks because he doesn't have any pain 
not on my advice, hey, I can start doing more dynamic stuff. So now he's doing um, some low level plow metrics, some uh, quick bounding work, he's running up hills um, amongst other things. So he comes back and he's like, my knee hurts, my patellar tendon hurts. Well, if we start to that, he has no pain with long, slow loading, but with more dynamic efforts, he has pain. Well, that's a change in force profile of the tendon. Mm -hmm. So he comes back in last week. And uh, th this was my first visit with him uh, uh, since him coming back. He's like, listen, man, I don't know that we're making any progress. My knee hurts again. I'm like, well, your knee hurts because what you did has not matched up to what we've done. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So what do I do? So again, I, I start with, you know, my assessment going through knee workspace, looking at knee cars, so on and so forth. We start long, slow loading again. So I'm like, let's start long, slow loading. So we're doing manual resisted eccentrics through length. We're progressing up to uh, one-legged eccentrics to a very low box, but we're doing it slow, no pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. So you go back to a, a, a different force profile. There's no pain in the tendon. Yep. So immediately, as this is going on in my head, I'm like, okay, we have to change the velocity of movement. We have to change what now you're calling, which I, I love, the force profile. So we immediately went to. Uh, some catch work, some overspeed eccentrics, starting to add velocity. And these things we talk about in the ISM um, as load bearing capacity of connective tissue. Well, in this case, I'm just trying to change the profile of load bearing capacity of this patellar tendon. Yeah. So we start going uh, through some faster eccentrics. So changing the forces, changing the velocity, um, so now he's moving a lot faster. We're using band resistance, by the way. <clears throat> so he starts, he goes, man, that's, that's starting to feel some discomfort. Now, uh, as we're doing this, now, when someone has a tendinopathy and they start to feel discomfort from a clinical scenario, I'm not super concerned because I expect that to some extent, particularly when you change the, the speed with which you're, you're loading something, correct? That's one thing that the old eccentric protocols in the literature never did, right? They never changed the velocity of the movement. Velocity. It was all slow. All they did was really just change the amount of load, but they didn't change the speed of movement. Mm -hmm. So they're still working on a certain force profile as, as we now know, right? So he gets, uh, we're, we're going through this. <clears throat> He's having pain, but as we're going through some of this uh, more reactive work, um, pain is starting to go down. So now I get him up towards the end of, of the session and I'm like, okay, well, let's start moving through what we were doing before as slow loading. Let's start doing it faster. No pain. Yep. Yep. Not that I'm saying that I magically just uh, reversed and changed his whole patellar tendon. But what I am saying is that as, as we've been discussing that, <clears throat> you know, when you look at, when you look at tissue and you think of tissue specifically tissue 
doesn't have like any conscious awareness of what it's supposed to do. What it does is it has a behavior that it is supposed to emerge. Yes. Yep. Right. And so when you think about this case specifically, what we had done is we had, we had provided enough information to this tendon to emerge slow loading behavior. But what we hadn't done up to that point is provided information to that tendon about emerging faster loading behaviors, right? So <clears throat> this force profiling is what allows us to target tissues specifically in making them or, or um, for lack of a better word, teaching them or providing them the information to allow that tissue to emerge a behavior that we want it to emerge. So in this case, I didn't want any more emergence of slow loading behaviors because we were good with that. We needed to start to, to amp up the velocity of the movement, which the tendon responded with, hey, I don't know this information. So when something, when a tissue doesn't know this information, what is the default mechanism is usually some sort of discomfort, some sort of nociception, mm -hmm. which is why I'm, I'm not super concerned about that uh, specifically in, in a clinic scenario um, and why we continue with that. But over time that starts to come down because now you're starting to provide that information to that particular tendon, patellar tendon in this case, to then emerge a behavior of velocity-based load-bearing capacity, which is what this athlete needs anyway. So it just kind of told me, and this is a good kind of scenario, whereby we had hit the peak of slow loading and it was time to move on and change the profile of force and velocity to this tendon to then further progress uh, along clinically. And we still have some work to do, but this is, this is a good example, I think, of what we use you were just talking about. And from a rehab perspective, this whole idea of providing the appropriate input at the appropriate time of force, or in this case, less force, more velocity, is uh, how you're going to continually progress tissues. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that's a lot. But I think there's a lot of things that come out of that concept. And one of them is that there is a belief um, in the standard model of training that exercise somehow generically uh, gives the same information to each tissue, even though the force profile for the one exercise is identical. Same. That's right. right? It's like it, it, the assumption is it's going to distribute pr properly. And then you said something very, very smart there in that and it's obvious, but you think about it, the tissues don't have consciousness, right? So it's not like they can take the, the forces coming at them and then decide which ones to make use of and which ones to not. It, it, it doesn't work that way. And exercise provides a particular force profile because of the way the exercise is performed. Right. And it will beneficially alter some tissues and sometimes at the expense of others. And the lack of understanding or the understanding that we're just exercising the movements uh, is a problem. And here's another place where this becomes a problem is that everything you just described is hilarious because when you think of return to play guidelines, mm -hmm. they ignore the differences 
So you just said that there might have been slow loading into that tendon for a long period of time, and then the pain went away. And then what happens in rehabilitation often is as the pain goes away, the assumption is that the tissue has now normalized and that all that need be done is a practice of movement. And then when a, a practice of a movement becomes a return to play test, which is really, can you do this skill? Then the assumption is, yeah, you can do the skill. Therefore you can go back to play. So right. it, it gets to the heart of not understanding the difference between training and practice, which as we speak in the last few years has become, you know, we've talked about this a lot now and this, 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 this spot where training becomes practice and practice becomes training is so muddled that people are not understanding that if you tell someone, you know, return to play, can you run as fast as you can and then slow down in this particular timeline? The fact that you can do that doesn't mean that the exact tissue that was damaged that you're rehabilitating is what allowed you to do that. That could have been performed by any number of surrounding tissues compensating for the lack in the particular tissue you were rehabbing. Right. And then of course people, well, how do you know this, this is all hearsay? Well, it is and it isn't because the number one injury you're likely going to sustain following an injury is the same injury. And, and that goes with any injury you sustain, which to me tells me that there was a, a, a mismatch in force profile during training or, or else how can all of that training have not led to an increased load bearing capacity in that tissue such that the injury would not occur again. But it seems like the injury always occurs again, uh, which maybe means that our outcome measures are wrong. Um, yeah. and, and it also means that our understanding of what an exercise is and what it does might be wrong. It's almost like we imbue um, knowledge to the exercise itself as if the exercise knows what it's doing. You yeah. know what I mean? Like this exercise is good for the lower body. But what is your lower body? Like your lower body is, is thousands of force profiles, right? And, and you yeah. can't just assume that every, every way that an exercise is done leads to the same, the same, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because we, we, we were originally started on the hip. We got away from the hip, but this fits into the hip because if you look at the majority of injuries that you would potentially see in the hip region, so I'm not talking hip joint specific now, but like groin injuries, um, gluteal tendinopathies at the uh, greater trochanter, uh, progressing up into lower abdominal type stuff. I know in, in, in a lot of our clinical past, we've, we've dealt with a lot of soccer athletes with a lot of hockey athletes with groin injuries that, um, you know, can become, uh, pupalgia type scenarios or, um, sports hernias as a general term. And if you look at, if you look at the, um, if you look at the literature specifically on these types of, of injuries, not, not groin injuries specifically, although groin injuries do become chronic for mm. a myriad of reasons. Number one of which I think is not matching the appropriate input to the appropriate tissue <clears throat> and muddying the difference between uh, training and skill. And we, we can talk about that in a second. But if you look at um, 
you know, external oblique tears, uh, you know, uh, conjoint tendon issues, uh, so on and so forth. What is the precipitating factor in a lot of those injuries? It's chronic mechanical groin pain. Absolutely. Spilled over to other tissues because the ability of that tissue to regulate the forces at various amounts of force at various speeds, depending upon the athlete or the person and what they're doing just spills over into other tissues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then those tissues are prepared for the same amount of force. So then they become problematic as well. Like, I, I mean, when you think about, um, you know, us in clinic over the last however many years, how many times we have seen that, and then you're like, well, have you ever had groin issues? And you're like, they're like, well, yeah, I've had terrible groin issues for years. <laughs> yep. I mean, that's yep. just, that's just, um, I mean, that, that's just clinical manifestations or injury manifestations of what we've just been talking about. I think, I don't know if it's the same, but it, it, what you're getting at is that one of the reasons reason. why people have chronic groin pain that you find is that the people who were treating the chronic groin pain were not treating the specific tissue eliciting the pain, which proves that everything has a particular force profile, right? So yep. if we, let's start, let's stay in the, in the, the groin area because let's stay in the groin area uh, because it's interesting. That's a bad sentence. Let's stay in the groin area just because it, it proves this point. Because like we said, you have athletes, let's say you have a slap shot gut or you have tearing of the uh, oblique, which is causing um, tethering or irritation of the, the, uh, the, the ilio, uh, what are the ilio, ilio inguinal um, nerve, you know, up in this region. And that is producing this groin pain. But then you also have uh, conjoint tendon tears. I don't know if I can find the conjoint tendon here specifically, um, but the conjoint tendon being the you have this inguinal ligament. The inguinal ligament is really the external oblique kind of folding in on itself to make that ligament. And then you have the continuation of that ligament onto the, the pubic region, which is that conjoint tendon. So you get tearing into the conjoint tendon. Another example of something that will uh, come out as groin pain. But if you're doing, you know, Alfredson's eccentric protocol for the adductor longus, that's not going to get to the root of that problem. You can have uh, herniations in this region. You can have um, uh, abdominal abnormalities, or posterior abdominal abnormalities, again, leading to this groin pain. And no amount of eccentric, which is really trying to, an attempt to match the force profile to the adductor longus or to the adductor brevis or whatever, no amount of loading there will fix that problem specifically. Right. Uh, and that is, again, because of, of this issue that the force profile has to be matched exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, that, that even goes to if you, if you actually do have a tendon problem in the groin and, and if you are able to differentiate between, you know, an adductor longus problem versus an adductor brevis problem versus a gracilis problem, if you understand exactly the anatomical structure, then you can better match your training to better suit that force profile. So that, you know, it could be an example of doing an eccentric with your knee bent versus your knee straight. 
in mm -hmm. order to get the muscles that cross two joint versus one joint, right. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Plus the, plus the direction of lengthening that you want to create will be different depending on those, those structures. And you said that again, because really force at length, as we've discussed, is the, the force profile needed in order to progressively strengthen white stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, from a, from a, from an FP perspective, the functional palpation for people, yeah, functional palpation, uh, which, which we teach in FR, uh, you know, that, that region, that groin region is a very, it's a difficult area for a lot of practitioners to, to understand how to tease out those different structures that, that you mentioned. So in, in functional palpation, which precedes uh, FR in the course, we, we go through systematic ways that we can differentiate layers of adductor tissue, layers of anterior hip tissue to really tease out those tendons. So how do we differentiate an adductor longus, which is our reference structure, from a brevis, from a gracilis, from the anterior face of adductor magnus, which, which we can't see here because it's, it's sitting underneath there, from a pectineus, because that anatomical knowledge can help you as a, as a practitioner. It can help you as a, a trainer or a coach if you know specifically what tissues might be problematic based on your ability to palpate, to understand the anatomy and then palpate that anatomy. You understand that all of those tissues exist in the same compartment, but they all have directional differences. And mm -hmm. so really understanding those directional differences and uh, depth of tissue and how much white stuff exists in the adductors versus the pectineus can really help you understand how you would create length in those tissues so that you can begin loading at length of those tissues, which is what we would call the length, the beginning of the length loading progression, which the end of the length loading progression is now that you have um, gotten or, or achieved or acquired the length that you need of those tissues for that particular client or, or patient or athlete to do what they need to do. How do you change the velocity of loading at various points of that length or through that length, which is again, back to this force profiling concept to truly um, target those or that particular tissue to match that force profile to what it's going to undergo in whatever activity this particular uh, person is, is doing. And I think that's a big thing that's missed in a lot of rehabilitation because rehabilitation becomes, hey, it's a tendon, hey, it's a muscle strain. So let's just do some exercise. If it's a tendon, let's just do some eccentric stuff. If it's muscle, let's just do some concentric stuff at just regular, regular, um, at a regular tempo for eight to 12 repetitions over a period of time. And then let's do, uh, let's see if you can do what you used to do at a very slow, uh, level 
And then if you can do that, okay, you're ready to go, but you, you haven't matched tissue specific requirements or demands to tissue specific behaviors and how you're going to link up the demands and the behaviors. That's where the force profile, that's where the maxims come in mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that we specifically discuss in the ISM. That's where the maxims come in. So you can meet that from a tissue specific or a biological, what we would call the biological elements perspective. Um, and that's really, really important, hugely I mean, important. It, it's, it also extends not only to training, but into treatment. And I think it does so, and it proves another point here is that if, if treatment is understood as a, as a generic thing, whereby there's a boo-boo here let's rub the boo-boo in order to make the pain feel better and let's carry on. The importance of understanding the differentiation of anatomy and palpation and matching force profiles is completely lost because yeah. if you have groin pain, you know, ostensibly you rub into the groin. And if you look at the way that soft tissue has been um, treated in the last few years, it's, it's with utmost disrespect in that, the assumption that it is that it doesn't matter uh, how you apply the soft tissue, which is insulting not only to the soft tissue, but it's insulting to the process of the anatomical evolution that led to the complexity of the system we're dealing with. And to say that I'm just rubbing an area is to say that I don't believe in that evolutionary complexity. And I don't believe that each tissue was forged there because of the very specific force profile, angle of force execution, duration of force execution, um, et cetera, et cetera, that led to the, the creation of that tissue. It's almost like if you go backwards and assume that you're just a, a statue or a figurine, you know, the anatomy figurines where you can pull off this muscle and put this muscle on. If you're back in that understanding, then yeah, like then soft tissue just becomes rubbing. Or if you have an old idea as to what you're accomplishing in soft tissue, for example, you know, you're just trying to find adhesions, whatever the hell those are and, and break them apart. It again, uh, it again, de-emphasizes the importance of being uber specific in knowing how to load those tissues in time. Yeah. Um, and it, it, I mean, if you think about soft tissue, the way we do at the level of the cellular system, because I think that that's the it's almost like our profession was at the superficial level for a long time and it never got deeper. So, you know, my hammies are on fire or I tore into my groin or, you know, these kind of words, which to us mean nothing. Like, what do you mean your groin? Your groin is millions of different things. So what exactly do you mean by groin? Mm -hmm. But this dumbed down understanding of the anatomy, I think also led to this watered down understanding as to what the soft tissue is supposed to be doing. You know, you're breaking adhesions or you're, you're taking tight things and making them longer, which you're not right. And not understanding exactly at a cellular level, what your force inputs are supposed to be doing. If you don't, then again, you're not thinking about matching your force profiles appropriately. You're just thinking about rubbing areas of anatomy and hoping for the best. And then making that anatomy do some exercise that is then going to magically influence everything. Yeah. Or, I, or just trusting that the exercise is going to affect the tissue that you're thinking about just because you're thinking about it is another weird thing. Like, 
You know what I mean? Like if you have a tear in a particular rotator cuff muscle and you're doing a particular exercise, likely the exercise is not being done by the area that that tear is in, right? If you're doing a generic movement, it's likely being done by the tissues in the area that can do the movements, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, so it really does behoove you to understand the anatomy to the extent that we're saying, which is why we always say, you know, for functional range release, the soft tissue thing, it's, you know, for manual therapists, but we have spots available for trainers. Uh, not that I trainers bring that up actually, sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but yeah, I've had, we we've been online now in, in FR for, well, since, since the pandemic started. Um, so we've had a lot of, of coaches and personal trainers and uh, strength conditioning specialists take the course because it's, it's been online. So, you know, they're, they're taking advantage of, of not having to travel and, and being stuck at home and so on and so forth. Um, and those that I know personally uh, have given me tremendous feedback uh, through email or text or whatever about how valuable that part of the course was. Obviously they can't do the, the FR manual loading component because they're not certified or licensed to do so, but the ability to have that extra depth of knowledge about the anatomy and the, the story that the anatomy is telling you and how you can use your hands to get an idea of the background of that story um, is, is they've given me tremendous feedback in terms of how it's helped them apply, you know, FRS based principles. Uh, and not only that, just, just principles of, strength and conditioning and training and loading tissues generally across the board, because um, as you, as you kind of pointed out, like, you know, when you look at, when you look at that anatomy, I, <clears throat> the, the blueprint of the DNA tells us that there has to be direction of that anatomy and that anatomy will exist at depths of, tissue, right? Like we never, we never see uh, uh, a sartorius that goes in the opposite direction. Yes, that would be messed up. We, we never see a glute medius that is on top of the glute max. Like these things don't happen. So there is, there is an understanding that there are rules to the anatomy. And those rules dictate that certain tissues exist at certain levels and the rules exist that those tissues specifically go in specific directions. Sure. So it behooves us then to understand from a, a, an anatomical uh, knowledge perspective that that exists but then taking that a step further, being able to actually localize it with your hands and feel it and be able to <clears throat> understand the direction of what we call the sartorius goes from superior lateral to inferior medial and ends up on the medial side of the knee. That, that, that knowledge takes it you know, so many steps further to understand that you can access a pectineus uh, through that superficial fatty tissue of, 
of the uh, femoral triangle, to understand that you can access a gluteus medius, that you can understand that you can access a gluteus minimus by changing depth, positioning the, the limb to change depth so that you can feel that direction and you can feel that tissue, that, that takes your ability to understand um, how you would influence that tissue just to a whole nother level. With, so, so you're not just doing, you know, again, generic stuff at the hip to say, I'm going to target the hip abductors, which, you know, is what those are otherwise known as, but to understand that the depth of those tissues changes the input mm. and the depth of those tissues changes your ability to scale force into those tissues. And the depth of those tissues helps you understand that those tissues become more capsular. So now you have to start thinking about hip capsule tissue and how you might influence that. And what is the force profile of the hip capsule? And how do we target that particular tissue, which is more white than anything? So um, yeah, the, the, the feedback that, that we've gotten from uh, non-practitioners about that information has been extremely positive. I know that we're probably going to run short on time within the next few minutes. So why don't we do this? Let's go rapid fire back and forth in the area of the hip. And let's just give people a few clinical or training gems that they might otherwise have not have known um, so that they can pull something clinical or practical out of this. So I will start um, and we'll try not to overanalyze these things, but we'll try to just give uh, information as needed. So here's one. Um, sciatica mm -hmm. is a very common condition. Sciatica, uh, the way that we explain it occurs when a person presents with either lateral knee or even more commonly lateral ankle pain that occurs just posterior to the lateral malleolus in this region here, as well as pain here. So a uh, clinical thing that I often tell people is when you have a generic lateral ankle and a generic knee pain, which when assessing the ankle or the knee, you cannot reproduce to any great extent. Um, it's a dull aching pain. Uh, the, the, the thought process of dull aching pain puts us to a referral pattern. That referral pattern is actually um, the referral pattern of the gluteus minimus. So if you were to example, for example, take the ASIS and the greater trochanter and bisect the line between the two, and you were to palpate, let's say in this region here, uh, either on a tennis ball or with your fingers, when you press in, um, often you'll say, I'm looking for a reproduction of the pain. You push in the area, likely the person's gonna go, oh my God, my gluteus minimus hurts like hell. Uh, if you hold that, you go anywhere else, they go, no, I don't feel it anywhere. And then they're going to go, oh, wait a minute. I'm starting to feel a, a reproduction of the pain in my lateral knee. And then if you hold that pressure in the gluteus minimus for a little bit longer, they go, oh, wait a minute. I'm now starting to feel that pain in my lateral ankle. And that's the, uh, the key to diagnosing referral problems anywhere is palpate, but allow the, the pressure to sit for a while in order to generate these referral patterns. So uh, one of them is uh, that uh, concept of sciatica. And I also want to point out that for palpation of that gluteus minimus, 
like Dr. Chivers was just saying, the understanding of the depth of tissue and understanding that in order to get to that glute minimus, you have to layer through this gluteus medius uh, is ultimately very important. Your turn, go. Uh, okay, so uh, getting back into the groin region, I suppose. <clears throat> I think what I'll point out in the groin region is uh, that and this is primarily from uh, uh, like a hands-on practitioner perspective. And maybe this is just because practitioners can't access some of the uh, smaller anatomical structures in the groin, but not every groin issue is an adductor longus problem. Yep. yep. Uh, so uh, it, 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 it really behooves us to assess the anterior face of adductor magnus um, and so what we're talking about here, I don't know that you're going to be able to pull it up as we're talking, spin that around so we can see medial and just kind of go take your cursor on that epimesial space between gracilis and longus so that we can access, uh, adductor brevis, which is okay. a very common, uh, problem in the groin. Gracilis longus. I'm going to remove longus so that you can see what he's talking about. And then when you remove so there, longus, there. There um, so much shorter tissue. So when you think about, again, just like the lengthening ability of, of the adductor compartment, uh, the pectineus, the adductor longus, and the upper portion of that anterior face of Magnus, which is going to sit right under there, right under the brevis, uh, are going to have are going to have a, a, a less ability to lengthen compared to an adductor longus. So it's important for us to be able to assess tissue quality through length of these shorter adductor tissues because they're often problematic in groin issues. And I think maybe this relates to sort of that component of long-standing groin pain where everybody kind of just targets a lot of their intervention at easy structures like gracilis and adductor longus, but these smaller structures that are a little bit more difficult to access because they're at depth um, should be uh, adequately assessed for any uh, neurological tightness issues, which is going to restrict femoral motion, uh, or any tissue quality issues, which is going to restrict the ability of those tissues to lengthen under load um, for our groin uh, patients. <clears throat> rectus femoris. Let's uh, go deep on rectus femoris and talk about a little anatomical thing that people might either forget or maybe they never knew, but they probably should. I think uh, this is one of those, I know where you're going with this. This is one of those anatomical details that I don't think was ever given its true importance. Yes. I, I, yes. A hundred percent. And when we, let's see if I can get in here. And when we talk about it, people are going to see why, but as you see from this rectus femoris, if I click on that and get, get smaller, there's actually two heads of the rectus femoris. So you have the head that's inserting into the AIIS on the anterior aspect of the anominate. And then you have this, what we call the reflexive head. And now this is not a particularly good picture in that the reflexive head 
in all of these pictures, it doesn't really show you how, how everything blends, but that reflexive head blends 100% into the anterior hip capsule. Mm -hmm. So when you're, let's say that this area is, is, has connective tissue arthrosis or uh, scarring into this region, uh, this area, maybe, maybe because of the fact that there has been superficial tissue damage or people never really move the deep tissue, that area has stagnated. Um, if that reflexive head no longer does its job, which is to pull the anterior capsule out of the joint during hip flexion, um, often what happens is when you flex that hip, you'll feel that anterior closing angle pinching. And then what we'll do is we'll do an isometric resistance against the rectus femoris in order to uh, preferentially activate that, that deep head or the reflexive head. And then with a few of those reps, when you retest hip flexion, oftentimes the pinch is gone. And that would tell you that you, you really want to focus your treatment into this reflexive head in order to bring back the function, uh, which is to pull that, that capsule out of the, the hip joint space. Beauty. All right. More, go ahead. Uh, let's talk about go posterior. So commonly, I think with uh, external rotation, so let's go supine 90-90, if, if, if everybody can visualize like a supine 90-90 of assessment of external rotation of the hip. And let's say we have clients, patients that are limited in external rotation. Uh, oftentimes, again, understanding what is greater trochanter versus what is hip. Oftentimes we say that's glute tightness. So the glute max must be tight and therefore is restricting the ability of that hip to externally rotate. Uh, I'm going to say that that is 100% a limitation of the posterior capsule. <clears throat> mm -hmm. uh, and the reason is, is if you look at that anatomy, <clears throat> the, well, first and foremost, glute max is nowhere near at depth of the hip joint. So this is a very superficial tissue that is going to have to uh, have some element of linear femoral motion to really access its true length. So therefore it can't be, and it doesn't have any bearing on the, um, what do I want to say? The axis of hip external rotation. Therefore it can't really be a player in hip external rotation limitations as it is commonly thought. So Commonly, what, what we see is a hip external rotation limitation. So we give our clients figure four stretches in an ability, uh, in, in, in the thinking that will target glute tightness and that will somehow uh, give us external rotation back. But if you pull the glute off, what I want to point out, <clears throat> if we get into those hip rotators, uh, specifically the two gemelli and the obturator internus, these are at depth, okay? These are going to make the largest bioflow contributions into that posterior hip capsule. As a matter of fact, in, in FP and FR, we just consider them posterior hip capsule. They're just tissue tensioners of that posterior hip capsule. And because they span directly in the, in, in the same direction as the posterior hip capsule, these are going to have more of a bearing as well as the articular capsule of the hip 
these are going to have more bearing on the rotational ability of the hip to be moved externally. So when we have an external rotation limitation on an FRA, passive limitation, we can't be thinking superficial tissue, i.e. glute max. You must be thinking uh, hip joint capsule. You must be thinking the posterior aspect of the hip joint capsule. And when you think about this from this anatomical picture, you're looking right at those hip joint rotators that do not rotate, but are tissue tensioners of the posterior capsule. Uh, so that's where we want to target. Uh, clinically, I found, uh, and this is not a hip case, but it presents here, is when palpating this structure, gluteus medius, um, the gluteus medius, of course, is not a one thing. It's a, it's a lot of things. So each of these fibers, as you can see, it, it fans out in a fan shape um, to insert onto the greater trochanter. But the posterior fibers, you can almost think of those fibers as acting independent of the medial, as acting independent of the anterior, similar to a deltoid. Um, and one thing that I found is in people that have they'll often complain of a generic pain in their pelvis and they'll kind of point to something out, out in this region. And when I palpate that gluteus minimus or medius, if I find a neurological tightness, meaning that the entire posterior aspect of that gluteus medius is spasming, um, I, I will tell the person that we likely have an impending disc herniation or disc injury on the rise. So in other words, you have disc problems uh, somewhere in between L4 uh, down L5, um, usually L5 S1, L4 L5, which contributes to the, uh, the gluteal nerve that innervates the, the gluteus medius. So with innervation problems or irritation, let's say you have discal damage, flexion type injuries, Oftentimes you'll get a spasming of this posterior gluteus medius, um, which is a warning sign that there's, there's a problem. So in that case, I'll tell the, take the person off of flexion. I'll, I'll have him in forward flexion limitations for a period of two to three weeks, whereby I don't allow them to get any reps into flexion in order to calm it down. And then oftentimes you find a decreased neurological tightness corresponding with, with better function in the lumbar spine. Hey there. All right. We're here. Uh, you spoke about the uh, rectus femoris making capsular contribution on the anterior side, glute minimus, large capsular contribution uh, from the lateral anterior side of that hip uh, capsule. Uh, so <clears throat> if you flip that around, yeah, so you can see those anterior fibers of glute minimus run in the exact same direction as the articular capsule. Again, these are just capsular tuners uh, of, of the anterior uh, hip joint. So this is how we must think of glute minimus is just being part of the anterior hip capsule, being a, a, a tensional tuner of that anterior hip capsule. So in our clients who might be a little bit older, who um, might be a little bit degenerative or uh, have limitations in hip internal rotation, you're often gonna find atrophy of the glute minimus as well, mm -hmm. whereby uh, you 
try to palpate for the meat on the, uh, the lateral part of the ilium and it doesn't exist. There's just empty space. So from a management perspective, that makes a lot of sense in that if I lose the ability to rotate that hip, which is fundamental to that hip, I, you know, oftentimes people that have a little bit of degeneration, their gait becomes altered in that they start to move side to side a little bit more in the coronal plane. Uh, So manage, and and then you're going to find atrophy of glute minimus because it's, it's, again, if, if form dictates function and function dictates form, then atrophy of the glute minimus is going to be, uh, you know, just a, a necessary byproduct of what's happening here. So not only do we need to manage the hip joint, but we also need to manage the glute minimus as well. So, um, adding some ISM inputs whereby we try to create some tissue hypertrophy in those clients is going to help them start to regulate their lateral sway during the gait cycle, um, which is going to allow them to weight bear more effectively through that hip. Uh, and also creating a little bit more capsular space. You're going to give them a little bit more dynamic space that they can use. Um, and that will really help out our uh, clients with internal rotation deficits. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we can go on at length. So those are the big ones. Those those, the- I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I was just looking here just to close that one off. I, I, I have a pet peeve about the, um, the, uh, piriformis Uh, i was waiting for this i I was gonna i was gonna mention it but go ahead yeah i mean so listen here's a muscle where it gets international fame and acclaim uh with claims that there's particular ways to stretch it um that that a particular there's a particular way to pinpoint the treatment of that 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 structure there isn't, um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a structure, but really structures should be thought of as what depth is it at? So this is at the depth of the, the deepest area of the, the hip, right? So other things that are said about it, you know, because the sciatic nerve and 30% of the population bisects through the piriformis that you can get uh, entrapment of the sciatic nerve. Again, the word entrapment is a very, it's a very bad analogy. Uh, the sciatic nerve, if you've ever done any actual cadaver dissection, you would have more respect for that sciatic nerve in that the sciatic nerve is about yay thick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea that a muscle uh, can somehow be strangulating it, like in order for that piriformis to be strangulating that thick of a nerve, we're talking about severe, severe, uh, you, you, I mean, you, you would have to have told me that they got in a knife fight and, and that their piriformis got sliced so badly that it's tethering that nerve. So needless to say, these nerves, there might be frictional irritation in areas, but just because it bisects that muscle, it doesn't mean that there is a, uh, a condition associated. I mean, the musculocutaneous nerve pierces right through the uh, coracobrachialis in the shoulder, and we don't talk about musculocutaneous nerve irritation um, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually when you have pain going down the leg, or it's, it's either a referral problem. You can have referral from the muscle itself. Um, but the idea that it's getting choked off is, is 
highly, highly, highly unlikely. And it's overdiagnosed. The way that they diagnose it is to take the, the leg and do a straight leg raise with the, the hip internally rotated as if that is going to preferentially just tension the piriformis <laughs> and just show you that there's something wrong there. Mm-hmm. I think that's a scenario where when you look at the anatomy raw, you make assumptions as to what can happen uh, superficially. And it doesn't happen. Another reason why you know it doesn't happen is because if there actually was a, a, a frictional irritation or a, a neurological tethering, you would also get the posterior cutaneous nerve uh, right down in here. Uh, you know, you would also get, you would not get problems there. there there's a whole pl- like a bunch of reasons as to why that's probably not an issue. Agreed. Um, Agreed. Yeah. Listen, we could do this forever, my friend. Um, I think that was pretty good. I think we did from, we did a, a couple of two and a half hours in a topic where we thought we wouldn't have more than two minutes to talk. Um, yeah, I think, I think it, I think it worked out well. I think we'll carry this on into the shoulder and other regions. Brilliant. Uh, very good. If there's nothing else to add, my friend, uh, I will give you the rest of the day to do whatever it is that you do when we're not having these conversations. I can't imagine what it is. And I imagine it's much more boring than, than have been the last two hours. So of course. yes. Uh, right, anything, anything else? That's a good, we're good. We're good. Yeah. We'll talk, uh, we'll talk sometime soon about, uh, another topic.